0: I'll admit that I cried. I saw a story years ago, I think it was around 2008, about two women's softball teams of small colleges out west playing uh, a game, the final game of the season. And a young lady came to bat. She was a senior. This would be uh, her last game. And she did something she'd never done before. She hit a home run over the center field fence. Matter of fact, her lifetime average was 153, so for her to hit a home run was a big deal. And while she was rounding first base, she was watching to see the ball go over the fence, and she missed first base. So she stopped to run back to first base, and when she stopped, uh, something went wrong in her knee, and her knee gave out, and she collapsed in the dirt. She's laying there, and uh, the coaches and the umpires are conferring what to do, and the umpires let uh, let her coaches know that uh, her own team could not help her around the bases. That would be assistance, and she would be called out and not get credit for her first home run. So while they're talking, conferring, something extraordinary took place. The opposing team walked up to this young lady, and they picked her up. She couldn't walk at all. And they walked her back to first base and lowered her down so her foot touched first base. Then they carried her over to second base, lowered her down so her foot touched Second base. Then the same thing happened at third base. Then They took her home, and the opposing team lowered her foot down on home plate so that her, she was credited with her first home run. When I saw that story, I just cried like a baby. And I was thinking, why do stories like that grip our hearts? Why do stories like that capture our attention? Maybe it's because stories like that are so few and far between. Have you noticed when you look at the news, when you turn on the television, there's a lot of bad news? There's a lot of evil in our world, things that are so abhorrent, it, it, it is painful even to think of them or hear the stories related to them. There's much evil in our world. And so when we see something good, it shines like a diamond in the rough. I want to talk to you this morning about good and evil. Evil and good. How we're to think about those two realities as followers of Christ and how we're supposed to process good and evil uh, in our lives. Now, I want you to turn with me to First Samuel chapter 22. First Samuel chapter 22 as we continue our study through this Old Testament book 1 Samuel 22, we will begin reading in verse 6. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able, please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. 1 Samuel 22, verse 6, the Bible says, Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with a spear in his hand, and All his servants were standing around him, and Saul said to his servants who stood around him, "Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For me, for all of you have conspired against me, so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse." And there is. None of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is to this day. Then Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. He inquired of the Lord for him, gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's household, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Saul then said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me in that you have given him bread and a sword and have, and have inquired of him of God for him so that he would rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house, did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to a servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priest of the Lord to death, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priest, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. And he struck Nob, the city of the priest, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys and sheep he struck with the edge of the sword. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life, for you are safe with me. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name we ask you to draw near to us in this moment. Lord, would you by your spirit take your word and apply it to our hearts. I pray that you would transform us. I pray that you would help us to become more like Jesus in these moments. I pray that you would glorify yourself through your word. And speak to us in mighty, mighty ways. Lord, establish my steps in your word for we ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we've journeyed through 1 Samuel, we have seen that the Lord named the first king of Israel. Uh, His name was Saul, but Saul proved to be uh, an ungodly leader, and so the Lord took the kingdom away from Saul and gave it to a man after his own heart, a young man named David. But after the Lord anointed David to be the next king, there was still a period of time when Saul was sitting on the throne, recognized by Israel as the king. David's time had not yet come. And during that period, Saul grew insanely jealous of David and begins to hunt him down, uh, attempting to murder him, to, to, to take his life. And we've seen that story unfold in the previous chapters of 1 Samuel. Well, last week we saw that David on the run from Saul comes to Nob where the priests were and comes to the chief priest of Himelech and says, listen, I need some help, I need some food, I need some sustenance, and the priest gave him bread. And also, the priest gave him Goliath's sword, so he had a weapon to protect himself uh, in the future, and the priest helps him out on that day. Well, we saw a bit of foreshadowing in chapter 21, specifically verse 7, that said, now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite the chief of Saul's shepherds. And I told you last week, all I'm going to say about Doeg is this. He's an evil dude. Well, this week we see Doeg's evil rise to the surface. We see the story uh, unfold as Saul is angry and says, Well, no one tell me where David is. Is everyone conspiring against me? And Doeg sees his opportunity. And you can almost see Doeg raising his hand. Oh, king, I know where David is. I was there on that day that he came into Nob, and I saw the priest give him bread and inquire of the Lord for him and give him a sword. And Doeg rats on David. And so Saul calls Ahimelech and his entire household and all the priests from Nob to his presence. And he says, because you've conspired against me, I'm going to kill you. And none of Saul's men, to their credit, want to kill them. They don't want to kill the priest who represents God until Saul looks at Doeg. Doeg, I want you to kill these 85 priests, and he does it. And we peer into chapter 22, and we are peering into the face of unadulterated evil. To see this man take 85 priests' life and then go to Nob and kill the men and women and children and, and infants. I mean, it is evil on display, and yet... As we look at chapter 22 and we journey into chapter 23, we see some glimpses of good. And how are we to process all of the evil and yet the good? How how are we to think through that? Well, I want to give you some some thoughts as we walk through this passage. And I want you to see two contrasting themes in this passage. First of all, we see the troubling reality of evil. The troubling reality of evil. Of evil, We see here that Doeg the Edomite kills these priests at the command of Saul. He murders these priests. Now, murder of anyone who's created in the image of God is a heinous crime. It is wrong. It is evil. But you have to have a seared conscience to, without thinking twice, kill these priests who represent the Lord. Uh, one of the first churches I pastored in North Florida, was way out in the country on a dirt road, and they had problems with people coming and breaking in the church and stealing sound equipment. They couldn't keep speakers in, in the church. People would come steal it. And I thought, you know, it's one thing to steal. Stealing's always wrong. But to steal from a church, I mean, <laughs> I mean how do you sleep at night? You have to have a, a seared conscience for that. And Dowig and is killing these servants of the Lord. It is evil. Evil is everywhere in this passage. Everywhere. Because you go to chapter 23... In chapter 23, the manhunt's still on. Saul is tracking David down. And we see a story where David takes his men to protect a city uh, named Keilah from the attacks of the Philistines. And even after David delivers that city from certain destruction, the men of Keilah are planning to deliver him into the hands of Saul. They, they've turned traitor and gonna, are going to betray David. And so there's just evil everywhere throughout the passage. From the insane jealousy of Saul to the murderous fury of Saul to the proud disclosure of Doeg to his wicked compliance to the manhunt for David to the unthankful treachery of the men of Keilah, evil is everywhere in this passage, which reminds us of this truth. Evil is everywhere in our world today, right? I mean, everywhere we look, we see great evil. There's a story right now that has not been covered, interestingly enough, by many of the mainstream news outlets, but that's starting to change a little bit. But there's a doctor from a a Philadelphia abortion clinic that is on trial right now. And as I read the story of what he's being accused of, I had to stop reading. It made me feel physically ill. I could not finish the article to, to, to read about the atrocities that took place in women's wombs. And outside of their wombs. I mean, just, 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 just evil, evil things. Horrific things. And I thought, oh, evil is so present in our world today. It is everywhere. And listen, we should not be surprised by evil. We shouldn't be shocked when we see something evil. Because we live in a sin-cursed world, and we all are possessed by a sin nature. We all are ruined by the fall. We all have a proclivity, a propensity to do evil things, to do wrong things. We are depraved without God in our life. So we should not be surprised when we see evil in our world. But here's something I want to discuss for just a few moments. The presence of evil is often a major stumbling block that keeps people from believing in the God of the Bible. There are some skeptics that just can't understand how there is evil in the world. How there are stories like the one we read coming out of Philadelphia. They, they just can't, they can't reconcile that. You look at the, the wars and the, the genocide and, and all that's taking place, and they can't reconcile the evil in our world with the fact that there is a good, powerful God. As a matter of fact, their question goes something like this. How can there be an omnibenevolent, that means all good, and an omnipotent God, that means all powerful, and there still be such great evil? How can there be an omnibenevolent, omnipotent God, and there still be such great evil in the world today? The philosopher Epicurus said it like this. Either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can and does not want to, or he cannot and does not want to. If he wants to but cannot, he is impotent. If he can and does not want to, he is wicked. But if God both can and wants to abolish evil, then how come evil is in the world? That's the question that skeptics ask. If God can and God wants to abolish evil, why is there still such great evil in our world? It's a good question. It's a question that's been a stumbling block to, to many people through the centuries. And I want to I tell you this there are answers to these difficult questions. The Bible does give us some guidance as we think through answers to these questions. matter of fact, this passage gives us some insight into the answers of these questions. So we talked about the troubling reality of good. I want to begin to try to unpack the, the answer to these questions by looking at the comforting reality of good. We've seen the troubling reality of evil. Now I want you to see the comforting reality of good in the midst of great evil which we see in this passage we see the unmistakable presence of good say wait where do you see good in this passage well first of all we see a good deed a good deed look what happens in chapter 23 verse 1 the bible says then they told david saying behold the philistines are fighting against calah and are plundering the threshing floor so david inquired of the lord saying shall i go and attack these philistines And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and deliver Kalah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kalah against the ranks of the Philistines? It's like they're saying, David, don't we have enough enemies? I mean, Saul is hunting us down. Now you want to go make some more enemies and fight the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once more. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Kalah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand." So David and his men went to Kalah. And fought with the Philistines, and he led away their livestock and struck them with a great slaughter. Thus David delivered the inhabitants of Kal. Now, when David heard the news that the city of Kal was under attack by the Philistines, he could have said, Somebody else needs to handle that. I've got my own problems. You haven't noticed the king is hunting me down. I don't have time to go and deal with Kalah. Somebody else needs to to cover that that city, deliver that city. I, I can't be the one that does that. But in the midst of David's flight from Saul, we see him want to do something good. We see him say to the Lord, should I go and help them out? And the Lord says, yes. And his men say, David, are you crazy? And the Lord says, go. So David goes and fights the Philistines and saves the city from the oppressive hand of the Philistine army. We see, even in the midst of this this evil in this passage, we see the unmistakable presence of good. it's, It's a stark contrast. Chapter 22 you have Doeg killing 85 priests. chapter 23, you have David saving folks. It's a stark contrast. It's evil contrasted with good. So we see a good deed. Secondly, we see a good man, a good man. Look what happens in chapter 23 verse 15. Saul is I'm sorry, David's still on the run from Saul. It says, now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horish and encouraged him in God. Thus he said to him, do not be afraid because the hand of Saul my father will not find you and you will be king over Israel and I will be next to you. And Saul my father knows that also, so the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David said at Horesh, while Jonathan went to his house. In the midst of David's frantic, uh, frantic escape from Saul, we see him encouraged by a good friend named Jonathan. Now, we've looked at Jonathan a lot as we've studied 1 Samuel. We saw that David and Jonathan entered into this covenant relationship, covenant friendship, and it's extraordinary to note, the Bible says it here, that Jonathan is Saul's son. I mean, if David were killed, Jonathan Jonathan would be the next king. But Jonathan understood that was not God's will. He understood that God had anointed David to be the next king. So he's on God's side here, and he's on David's side. And as Saul's son, he comes and encourages David and strengthens David and, and renews his covenant with David. He's a good man. I mean, what a contrast from Doeg. The one who rats David out and kills the priest. Here's Jonathan doing the right thing. Here's Jonathan being a true friend. Here's Jonathan displaying extraordinary selflessness. A good man. So we see a good deed, a good man. But third, we see a good God. A good God. Look what happens in chapter 23, verse 6. Remember David delivered Keilah from the Philistines. It says in verse 6, Now it came about when Abiathar the son of Ahimelech fled to David at Keilah, that he came down with an ephod in his hand. When it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand for he shut himself in by entering a city with double gates and bars. So Saul summoned all the people for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Now David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him so he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod here. And David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard this for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. Now the ephod here is a garment that the high priest would wear that contained two stones called the Urim and the Thummim. And God would use those stones to help people discern his will. So David says, okay, bring the ephod. We need to ask God some questions he says, Lord, will the men of Keilah deliver me into their hands? Will Saul come down as I have heard? And look what happens in verse 12. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Now think about this. David was the city's savior. He had rescued them, and now they're going to turn him over to the king. Extraordinary. Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the pursuit. David stayed in the wilderness, and the strongholds remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Zeph. Now, watch this. And Saul sought him every day. Watch this. But God did not deliver him into his hand. Why does David keep escaping? God's hand is on David's life. God is good and God is providing for David's need uh, needs in the midst of his flight from Saul same thing in the chapter of chapter 23 Saul here's where David is the the Zephites, uh, betray David yet again and Saul's hunting him down the Bible says that the Saul's army is on one side of the mountain and David and his army on the other side of the mountain and Saul's getting closer and closer and closer and just before Saul strikes, to take David captive, a man comes running up and says to Saul, 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 the Philistines have attacked. And Saul has to leave and go attend to the Philistines. That, again, is God's deliverance on display, God's protection on display. We see here a good God, God providing for David's needs. Now, you see evil in this passage, but you also see good. And here's my question. Why is there good? Why is there good in this passage? Why is there good in this world at all? You see, there is good in this world because there is God in this world. There's good in this world because God's in this world. The good can be attributed to the presence and the working of God in our midst. So someone may come to you and say, how do you explain all the suffering? How do you explain all the evil? To which you can reply, how do you explain all the good?" How do you explain all the good? You see, we can't even define what is evil unless we have a standard of rightness, decency, and goodness. So when someone points their finger and says, that's evil, what they're saying is, there is something that's good. There is a standard of right and wrong. How do you you explain the standard? How do you explain there is something that's right, there is something that's decent, there is something that's good? You explain it by the presence of God. So when someone says something's evil, they are implying that there is something good, and that goodness can be explained by God. You see, God is the standard of goodness and rightness and decency of right in this world. Turn to Psalm 52 very quickly with me. I'm going to show you this. Psalm 52. I love to see the connections that are all throughout the Bible. And Psalm 52 is a psalm written by David. And look at the context in small letters right before verse one. The Bible says it's a maskil of David when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, "David has come to the house of Ahimelech." So the context of this psalm is the situation we just read about. So what does David have to say about all that transpired in chapter 22? Look what he says in verse one. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. He looks at Doeg and says, you're evil. He looks at God and says, you're good. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. You love evil more than good. Notice both are there, evil and good. Falsehood more than speaking what is right, say law. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up and tear you away from your tent and uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous will see and fear and will laugh at him, saying, Behold, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. But as for me, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. I will give Give you thanks forever because you have done it. I will wait on your name for it is what? Good in the presence of your godly ones. David says, when I'm surrounded by evil, people like Doeg and the murderous intentions of Saul, when I'm surrounded by evil, I look to God and I see good. I see loving kindness. I see a standard of decency, a standard of right." which by which all else is measured and so we see in this passage the troubling reality of evil and yet the comforting reality of good now i want to give you some some closing thoughts six closing thoughts to help you to kind of wrap your mind around these themes today to summarize what i've been saying to you first of all evil is real Evil is real. You don't need me to convince you of that. It's everywhere. Evil is real. It's troubling because it is real. Secondly, God is perfectly good and all-powerful. God is perfectly good and all-powerful. The the presence of evil does not diminish God's power and God's goodness. God is perfectly good and all-powerful reigning over this evil world. Now, how, does, how, how do you relate all of that together, Wade? The, the, the goodness of God, the power of God, and the, the present troubling evil all around us. Well, here's how you think through that. First of all, because God is good, he brings good out of evil. Because God is good, he takes the most evil of situations and does something good. He brings good out of them. One of the classic examples of this, of course, is Joseph in the book of Genesis. You remember? Uh, Joseph had some jealous brothers and so they throw him in a pit and when a caravan of traders comes by they they give him to them as a slave and these these traders take Joseph into Egypt and through a series of uh, of wonderful uh, events god working providentially Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. He, he interprets some of Pharaoh's dreams. He's able to see what's coming. Uh, seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. So Pharaoh says, okay, you're in charge to, to prepare us for that famine. So Joseph uh, leads Egypt to, to store up grain during the time of plenty. And when the time of famine comes, all the surrounding nations have to come to Egypt to get grain, including Joseph's brothers. So to keep their family alive, The brothers have to come to Egypt to get some grain. And when they get there, Joseph recognizes his brothers. They don't recognize him. And through an interesting story, Joseph finally reveals himself to them. He says, bring my father here. I'm going to take care of my family. You have everything you need here in Egypt. And through that remarkable story, the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham are preserved. God saves them providentially through Joseph's care for his family. Now at the end of The book of Genesis chapter 50. After Joseph's father dies. The brothers come and say. Listen dad's dead now. And we're we're worried you're going to take vengeance on us. Now you're going to get us. Now you're going to. Seek revenge. And Joseph says something extraordinary. Joseph says. You meant all of this for evil. But God meant it for good. See, that's God. God's in control. God's powerful. God's good. And he shows his goodness by taking the most evil of situations and bringing good out of them. This is so apparent at the cross. Is there anything more evil in human history than the cross? Where Jewish religious leaders demanded the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Some Roman soldiers take him and lay a cat nine tails across his back, tearing his back into ribbons. They thrust a crown of thorns on his brow. They pluck the beard from his face. They hit him with their fists. They make him carry a rough wooden beam to the top of a hill called Golgotha. And there on that hill, they nailed his hands to the cross and and nailed his feet to the cross. And Jesus hung there from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon, hanging there, suffering the agony of crucifixion. Is there anything more evil than that? These Roman soldiers, these religious leaders conspiring to kill the Son of God who had done nothing wrong? There's nothing more evil in human history than the cross. And yet, what did God do through the cross? God made a way for sinners like me and sinners like you to be reconciled to God, to be forgiven of their sins, to be saved. God took the greatest evil and he brought something good, namely our salvation. And So, God is good, so he brings good out of evil. Next. Because God is good, he defeated evil at the cross. Now if you step back from the book of 1 Samuel and kind of look at the big picture, you might ask yourself this question. Why is God going to such extraordinary lengths to protect David? What's going on here? Why all these escapes? Why is God's hand on David's life? The answer is this. God had a plan to send a king through David's lineage. To send a Messiah through the descendants of David. So so God is preserving the royal line through whom he would send the Messiah. That's what's happening big picture here. And Jesus came as the descendant of David, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Jesus defeated evil, listen, by taking our punishment on the cross. Therefore, evil can be forgiven. You see, when it comes to evil, we all struggle with evil. Oftentimes, we look around at the evil that encompasses us, but we need to think about the evil that lies within us. And Jesus came to die on the cross for all of our evil, all of our sin, all of our depravity, all of our wickedness. Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve. That's why he died. He died for our evil died for our wickedness. He died for our sin. So that if we embrace him as Lord and Savior, if we place our faith in him, invite him into our life, listen, by his blood, he washes all our evil away. The cross was Jesus defeating evil. Like what Randy Alcorn writes, whenever you feel tempted to ask God, why did you do this to me? Look at the cross and ask, why did you do that for me? The cross is a good God defeating our greatest enemy, which is sin. That has ruined our lives. And because of our sin, we are heading for an eternity in that awful place called hell. But God, in his great love and mercy and grace, sent Jesus to die for those sins. So that we could be forgiven. Let me give you another thought. Because God is good, he patiently endures evil in the world. Because God is good, he patiently endures evil in the world. So when someone says, okay, if God's all-powerful and God's all-good, why doesn't he take care of that evil? What they're saying is, I want God to instantly eradicate that evil. Now here's my question. Do we really want God to instantly eradicate evil the moment it happens? Because if he did, none of us would be here. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all done evil things, right? And if God instantly eradicated all evil, we would not exist. We would be in hell right now. So are we really wanting God to eradicate all evil? That instantly, is that what we're saying? That's not what we're saying. While we long for ultimate justice... We do not want instant justice. We should be grateful for the forbearance and the patience of God that He gives us time to repent and get right with Him and seek the forgiveness and the wholeness that He offers through His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, I hope you're grateful for the patience of God. And So, because God is good, He patiently endures evil in the world. We long for ultimate justice, and ultimate justice is coming. But we do not want instant justice. Which leads me to the last thought. We've said that evil is real. We've said that God is perfectly good and all-powerful. We've said that because God is good, he brings good out of evil. Because God is good, he defeated evil at the cross. Because God is good, he patiently endures evil in the world. But last, because God is good, he will completely eradicate evil. That day's coming where God will completely eradicate evil. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, last book in the Bible. If you get to the maps, you've gone too far, all right? Revelation chapter 21, what it says in verse 5. The Bible says, Now he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, this is Jesus, right For these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God. He will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So here's what the Lord is saying. No, there will be no evil people in heaven. All the wicked, all the evil, they they won't be there. Which should lead you to this conclusion. Uh Uh-oh. You just told me I was evil, Wade. And now you're telling me that no evil people are going to be in heaven. Listen. That's what makes the cross so extraordinary. When we embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior, listen. He washes all of our evil away. We are forgiven. We are reconciled to God. So when we die, we're not cast into hell. Our evil's been forgiven. We go into the presence of God in that wonderful place called heaven. And let me tell you about heaven. In heaven, there's no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more wickedness, no more evil. It's all gone. God will completely eradicate it. And that day is coming. Day's coming. You and I should be grateful for that reality. Ultimate justice is coming. Hitler didn't get away with it. Stalin didn't get away with it. Ultimate justice is coming. And our only hope is to have our evil washed away by the blood of the Lamb. To have our names written in the Lamb's book of life to know that we are right with God, that's our only hope because no unforgiven evil will be in heaven. And so we see in our passage this morning these major themes. Good and evil. Evil and good. The the troubling reality of evil, but the comforting reality of good. And we need to come to this conclusion. God is good. God is all-powerful. And one day, ultimately, he will deal with the evil. We can rest in that reality. We can rest in Jesus.